This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Due to the graphic nature of this criminal's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use, sex work, violence, and terrorism that some may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the mid-1960s, Germany was a petri dish of political strife. University students protested capitalism, assaults on human rights, and the Vietnam War. And when they felt protesting wasn't enough, some started planting bombs, robbing banks, and even killing people who stood in their way. At the center of this movement was Ulrike Meinhof, left-wing journalist, activist, and terrorist. Meinhof was the co-leader of the Bader-Meinhof gang, a leftist terror cell that was responsible for committing four murders, more than 30 attempted murders, multiple bank robberies, and half a dozen bombings. In a matter of just two years, this famous journalist and mother went from being a pacifist anti-war activist to a ruthless political militant. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Claire. You're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we're talking about Ulrika Meinhof, the journalist who helped spark a left-wing political war in West Germany in the 1970s. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Ulrika Meinhof was a left-wing political journalist throughout the 1960s. She rose to notoriety in 1970 when she helped fellow activist Andreas Bader escape imprisonment. From 1970 to 1972, she was involved in multiple protests, bombings, and terrorist actions as she led the communist Red Army faction in Germany. Depending on who you ask, Ulrika Meinhof was either a ruthless terrorist who met her end by hanging to death in a much-deserved prison cell, or a revolutionary who was targeted and killed by the government for trying to change things for the better. Meinhof is a political figure who is just as polarizing today as she was nearly 50 years ago. But before Ulrika Meinhof was an infamous militant, she was a little girl born in Oldenburg, Germany on October 7, 1934. Her parents were Werner and Ingeborg Meinhof, and she had one older sister, Vinka. Her father was a professor of art history and worked at the State Museum in Oldenburg. In August of 1934, just two months before Ulrika was born, Adolf Hitler had been elected president, or Führer, of Germany. 
According to the book Hitler's Children, the story of the Bader-Meinhof terrorist gang, Werner and Ingeborg were in staunch opposition to Hitler from the time he took office. In 1936, when Ulrike was nearly two, the Meinhofs moved east to Jena, Germany. Hitler and the Nazi Party's control escalated until 1939, when they invaded Poland and thus began World War II. There isn't a lot of information about how the Meinhofs were personally affected by the war. But something else happened in 1939 that hit much closer to home. Ulrika's father became gravely ill. According to the book Hitler's Children, Werner was treated for diseases he didn't actually have before dying of pancreatic cancer in 1940. Doctors didn't find the cancer until after his death. Despite the death of her father and the war going on around her, Ulrika was a pretty normal child. If we take a look at some psychological studies into children who live through war, we can see that not all children are obviously affected by it. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for this show. According to psychologists Machteld Venken and Marin Roger in their article, Growing Up in the Shadow of the Second World War, quote, children experience situations differently than adults. Young children are less politically informed and do not understand or share the enemy category of adults." End quote. Ulrika may not have fully comprehended the turbulent war that was going on around her. Or she was protected from it. Psychologist Fuad Mohamed Frey, in his report titled Psychological Effects of War on Children, stated that the outcome of war on a child's psychology can be affected by multiple factors. If a child has supportive, caring adults around to help her manage anxiety, she may be spared much of the psychological damage that could be expected. Additionally, Frey said that children may cope in a healthy way by, quote, devoting themselves to a cause and finding meaning in the experience, end quote. Ulrika's mother, Ingeborg, tried to make life as normal as possible for her daughters. She had never gone to college, but since Werner had been a city employee, the city paid for her to go to school. She decided to study art history. She was 31 at the time. At school, Ingeborg met a woman named Renata Remick, who was 19. They became friends, having interests in the same subjects, like art history and humanities, and both being anti-Nazi party. Some sources say Renata was a Nazi party supporter before the war, but by this time she had changed her stance. Many artists opposed Hitler due to the censorship he imposed on art, music, books, and film during his rule. As a full-time student, it was difficult for Ingeborg to financially survive as a single mother, she decided to take in Renata as a boarder. Ulrika, who was a bubbly, charming child, quickly took a liking to Renata. Renata was almost like a second parent to Ulrika and Vinka. In 1943, Ingeborg and Renata earned their PhD degrees and both began teaching. In 1945, when World War II ended, the two women joined the Socialist Party. After the war, the Allied Control Council, made up of the United States, the Soviet Union, Great Britain, and France, took control of Germany. The purpose of this was to demilitarize and reconstruct Germany, as well as to bring Nazi war criminals to justice. Jena, where Ulrika and her family lived, was in East Germany, Soviet Union territory. Ingeborg didn't want to raise her daughters under the communist Soviet Union-backed government. To many people, East Germany didn't feel as free as West Germany. In East Germany, reconstruction after the war was much slower than in the West. Roads and infrastructure were in disrepair, and prices for food and goods were higher than in the West. Plus, police officers and soldiers patrolled the streets of East Germany. Many people from East Germany emigrated to West Germany, leaving everything they owned behind in search of a freer life. Ingeborg was one of these people. In 1946, the Meinhofs and Renata Remick moved back to Oldenburg in West Germany. Ulrika was 12 years old at the time. 
But even after the move to Oldenburg, it wasn't smooth sailing for the Meinhofs. In 1948, tragedy struck Ulrika's family again when Ingeborg was diagnosed with cancer. She successfully underwent surgery but died from health complications in March 1949. Ulrika was just 14. Her sister, Vinka, was 16. The living members of Ulrika's family either lived in East Germany or were poor refugees in West Germany, just getting by. Remick fit into neither of these categories. She had a steady job as a college lecturer. She had already loved and cared for Ulrika and her sister for so long, she decided to become their foster mother. Remick noted that Ulrika didn't cry much after her mother's death. It's impossible to know how anyone will react when losing someone, especially their parents. According to Psychology Today, a child's grief may be affected by the relationship she has with other adults. Ulrika's strong connection with Remick may have helped her get through the loss. Remick was a constant in her life during this difficult time, and she was a parental figure. As far as we know, there were no lasting psychological effects directly related to the death of Ulrika's parents. In Hitler's Children, author Jillian Becker notes that as a child and teen, Ulrika loved seeking attention and approval from peers and adults. She was, quote, energetic, imaginative, and always wanted to fit in, end quote. She was intelligent, ambitious, well-read, and fond of art, music, and religion. She was a devout Lutheran. Her father had been religious, but Ulrika seemed to take more interest in religion than her mother, Remick, or Vinka had. According to Becker, Ulrika was a leader among her friends. She wore plain clothing and didn't worry about her looks like the other girls her age did. Her friends noted she was melancholy, and she liked to talk about philosophy and poetry and smoke cigarettes. In Hitler's Children, Becker writes about a former friend of Ulrika's who stated, quote, I felt definitely distinguished by her liking me. She had a conspiratorial air against everything that was considered normal, end quote. Ulrika idolized Remick, her foster mother, and Remick took her with her when she got teaching jobs in England and Hesse, Germany in the 1950s. Ulrika wasn't active in any politics in high school, but when she was at school in Hesse, she co-founded her school newspaper. It was the beginning of her amateur journalism career. In 1950, the Korean War broke out when communist North Korea invaded capitalist South Korea. The United States stepped in to support South Korea in the fight against communism. During that time, Western nations in NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, wanted to rearm Germany and create a new German army to help fight the spread of communism. Many Germans, especially students around Ulrika's age, were against this. This was only five years after the end of World War II, and the wounds were still fresh. The horrors of the Nazis and the Holocaust were too much to bear. Many young people wanted to give Germany a new image as a peaceful nation. But NATO was concerned with the threat of communism, and Germany was centrally located in Europe. The decision had to be unanimous. France, which had been occupied by Nazi forces for four years during the war, was the final member of NATO to agree to rearming Germany. In 1955, they agreed to a defensive German military. The rearmament of Germany created anti-Western sentiment in many German students. They thought of the United States as an imperialist nation that only cared about money and power. They started to protest against these wealthy capitalist nations. Their protests included marches, conferences, and journalism. Universities around West Germany were the heartbeats of the anti-rearmament movement. In 1955, Ulrika received a scholarship to attend Marburg University where she chose to study educational science and psychology. When she started university, she still wasn't very political, but leaned toward left-wing beliefs of equality and peace, matching the socialist ideals of her late mother and foster mother. She was opposed to the atom bomb and German rearmament, 
and her opposition to the bomb was stronger than any political party allegiance. Her passion for being against the bomb was fueled by the impending war in Vietnam. Much like Germany and Korea at the time, Vietnam was divided into a communist half and a capitalist half. The United States sent its military over to fight against communism once again. Pro-communist forces called the Viet Cong began fighting the U.S. and South Vietnamese forces in a war that would go on to last 20 years. Ulrika and her fellow students were fearful of Germany getting into another war, and also afraid that the United States would bomb Vietnam. But the Vietnam War hadn't reached its peak yet, and anti-war protests around the world were just beginning. In 1957, Ulrika transferred to the University of Munster and became more vocal in the anti-bomb movement. She was co-editor of a campus newspaper, Das Argument in which she argued against rearmament. In 1958, she was sent as a student speaker to an anti-bomb conference in Bonn, Germany. At the conference, she met a man named Klaus Roll, who was the co-founder of Concret, a left-wing university student newspaper. Ulrika was 22 at this point, and Klaus was 27. He had already been married and divorced and had a two-year-old daughter. Communism had been banned in West Germany in 1956 for being unconstitutional, but Rawl considered himself a communist. Konkret was a communist paper that was funded by money from East Germany and had a circulation of about 20,000. When Rawl and Ulrika met, they couldn't stand each other. He felt she wasn't interesting, and she thought he was arrogant. But as Ulrika spent more time around Rull, she began to get more interested in politics, and she began to fall for him. Up until this point, Ulrika had only had one serious relationship. While she was at Marburg University, she had dated a fellow student named Lothar Valek, whom she'd wanted to marry. But his family was Catholic, and she thought that, with her Protestant religious beliefs, the marriage would be too difficult. But now, Ulrika found herself spending more and more time with Rull. She started identifying as a communist. In September 1959, at the age of 25, she began writing for Konkret and became the foreign editor. From their office in Hamburg, Germany, she wrote articles about conflicts and situations that were happening around the world. She used her platform to promote peace and anti-rearmament. But big things were also brewing in her personal life. Rawl had a reputation as a serial adulterer, but Ulrika wasn't deterred by this. She began a romantic relationship with him. In 1960, they moved in together and got engaged soon thereafter on September 13, 1960. They were in no rush to get married, and the newspaper kept them busy. In August 1961, the Berlin Wall was built in order to stop refugees from leaving East Germany for West Germany. This wall, made of concrete and barbed wire, was 27 miles long and 11 feet high. It cut East and West Berlin in half, with the communists on the eastern side and the capitalists on the western side. Many West German communists were against the Berlin Wall but Konkret published two articles praising it. As a result, many students boycotted the paper. It's unclear how Ulrika personally felt about it. In 1961, Roll named Ulrika editor-in-chief of Konkret. By this time, she had made quite a name for herself with her spunky, brazen reporting. In her introduction to Everybody Talks About the Weather, We Don't, a collection of Ulrika Meinhof's writing, Karen Bauer says, quote, Meinhof's positions were no nonsense, and she tended toward the analytical and unambiguous, end quote. According to Bauer, Ulrika wrote about, quote, Cuba, anti-colonialism, German fascism, the anti-nuclear struggle, human rights, and social justice, end quote. And she managed to do all of this with a tone that projected optimism and pacifism. 
She decried violent protest and had hope that change could be administered through peaceful protest and diplomatic discussion. On December 26, 1961, Ulrika and Roll got married. She was 27 and he was 33. Perhaps bolstered by her success as a journalist or her new married life, Ulrika took bold to a whole new level when she publicly bashed the Minister of Defense, Franz Josef Strauss, for being pro-German rearmament in a 1962 article. She wrote, quote, As we ask our parents about Hitler, someday our children will ask us about Herr Strauss. End quote. Written just 17 years after the end of World War II, this accusation got Konkret in much more trouble than Ulrike had bargained for. Strauss sued the Konkret, the newspaper that published the article, but this would ultimately backfire. Ulrike refused to be silenced. She knew the truth. Politicians don't sue unless they're afraid. She wanted to use her new position of power to change the world. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to our story. Ulrika Meinhof's 1962 article about Franz Strauss caused waves, not just amongst her readers, but in political circles as well. Strauss lost his 1962 lawsuit against Konkret, and this attention from the German government seemed only to heighten Ulrika's confidence. She was one of only a few women working as journalists in Germany at this time, and people were really listening to what she had to say. In 1962, circulation for Konkret was roughly 30,000. It was still a fairly small newspaper, though it was popular amongst college students. As anti-war and anti-bomb protests around the country heated up, Ulrika remained a pacifist and tried to promote peaceful demonstration. According to the book Hitler's Children, the story of the Bader-Meinhof terrorist gang, Ulrika once wrote, quote, One does not change the world by shooting. One destroys it. One accomplishes more by negotiating, avoiding destruction. End quote. At this time, Ulrika showed no signs of becoming violent, nor any desire to take part in terrorism. In fact, she was living a pretty normal life. In early 1962, when she was 27, she became pregnant with twin girls. During her pregnancy, she began having severe headaches and trouble with her vision. Renata Remick, Ulrika's foster mother with whom she was still very close, convinced her to see a neurologist. There was probably serious fear for Ulrika's health, since both of her parents had died of cancer. The neurologist said she had a brain tumor, but they couldn't operate without harming the babies. So Ulrika decided to wait to have the surgery until after she gave birth, tolerating the excruciating headaches and vision issues throughout the remaining months of her pregnancy. Ulrika finally gave birth to Bettina and Regina on September 21, 1962. But after that, she still had to wait an entire month before she was recovered enough to withstand brain surgery. While hospitalized, Ulrika wrote for Concrete from her hospital bed. Journalism was her life, and she wouldn't let a thing like being bedridden hold her down. After a brain surgery that lasted several hours, 
in which doctors drilled a small hole through the back of Ulrika's skull. They discovered she didn't have a malignant brain tumor. Some sources say it was a swollen blood vessel, or blood clot, in her brain. Some say it was a benign tumor. Either way, she ended up hospitalized for three more months, but she didn't have any lasting health issues that they knew of. Both Remick and Rull reported that after the surgery, Ulrika was different. She became colder and more distant than she was before she went under the knife. According to the American Brain Tumor Association, quote, changes in personality and behavior occur in the majority of patients with brain tumors at some point during their treatment, end quote. These changes often include, quote, emotional and personality issues, including withdrawal, mood swings, socially inappropriate behavior, and denial of problem behavior, end quote. According to the book Hitler's Children, Ulrika also stated that she found it difficult to readjust when she returned home. Pregnancy, crippling headaches, delivering twins, brain surgery, and finally going home to take care of the babies must have been a lot to deal with. In addition to all of that, Ulrika and Rull were fighting a lot, and Ulrika had grown tired of his unfaithful behavior. She wanted to divorce him. But she also wanted her daughters to have a normal life in a two-parent home, something she didn't have when she was growing up. So she decided to stay married and remain editor-in-chief of Concrete. Her focus was on the Vietnam War. In 1963, South Vietnam's anti-communist leader was assassinated, and the U.S. amped up its military presence in the region. The war escalated with hundreds of thousands of casualties. The death and destruction that was happening in Vietnam inspired anti-war protests around the world. Ulrika, Rull, and the Concrete crew kept pumping out issues of the monthly magazine. But in 1964, they hit a wall. According to Everybody Talks About the Weather, We Don't, funding for Concrete stopped coming in from East Germany when the people in charge felt the magazine was straying too far from their communist ideals. Rull took over as editor-in-chief and decided to start publishing extracts from pornographic novels and photographs alongside the political articles in Concrete. That seems like a strange mix. It sure does. But maybe it appealed to the students who read the magazine. Or perhaps it reached beyond their normal readership. Whatever the reason, it seemed like a profitable mix. Circulation shot up to 100,000, and Rawl began getting rich. Ulrika knew the popularity of the magazine was because of the pornography, not the political articles. She started stepping out to work on her own projects. In 1964, she began writing for radio. Her first piece was about the trial of Nazi criminal Karl Wolf. She continued to write pieces about poor people, factory workers, institutionalized children, women's rights, and inequality in general. That same year, Ulrika criticized German Minister of Defense Franz Strauss in the pages of Concrete again. But this time, he won the case when he sued. It's one thing to be sued once and win. It's another to throw caution to the wind, risk it again, and lose. This gutsy move garnered Ulrika even more attention. However, according to journalist Neil Asherson first, who met Ulrika that year, some concrete readers felt Ulrika was too pacifist to be editor-in-chief of the magazine. Especially as protesting and activism became more common. In 1965, student communist groups were uprising in Germany, much to West Germany's dismay. They rioted, started fires, and hoisted Viet Cong flags atop buildings. But as the Vietnam War raged on, Ulrika kept her activism on the page. In her personal life, Ulrika was becoming more and more unhappy with Rawl. He liked money and high society, despite his claims of being communist. He and Ulrika would go to parties, wear the latest fashions, and live lavishly. Ulrika had never been interested in society, and she felt that this lifestyle was in direct opposition to her ideological beliefs. According to Live Science, quote, at its core, 
Communism is an ideology of economic equality through the elimination of private property, end quote. Going off of this definition alone, Ulrika was right to feel that way. By 1966, Konkret's circulation was up to 200,000, but Ulrika needed more fulfillment. She was 32 and a well-known journalist and wanted to use her writing to make a difference. She began investigating state girls' homes. These were homes for troubled girls, orphans, or juvenile delinquents. The living conditions in these homes were poor, and the girls had no freedom. They were forced to perform hard labor, and some even suffered physical or sexual abuse. Ulrika saw them as victims of a broken governmental system. To this day, there's a lot of disagreement about what event caused Ulrika's political extremism. Some say it was the brain surgery in 1962, but others point to this, her investigations into girls' homes that began in 1966. Journalist Neil Asherson first attributes Ulrika's revolutionary behavior to her research on the institutionalized girls. He said, quote, it convinced her they were victims of the system and should be trained to fight and smash it, end quote. Perhaps she saw something of herself in these girls. If it wasn't for Renata Remick, Ulrika and her sister could have been sent to an institution like this when they were orphaned as children. Maybe these helpless girls reminded her of her own daughters. Perhaps their conditions were so dire and she felt so helpless that there was nothing left for her to do but act. Much research has been done in trying to figure out the causes of terrorism or political extremism. According to psychologist John Horgan, director of the Pennsylvania State University International Center for the Study of Terrorism, there are a few traits found in people who are more susceptible to radicalization. People who, quote, feel the need to take action rather than just talking about the problem, believe that engaging in violence against the state is not immoral and have friends or family sympathetic to the cause, end quote. Ulrika had been talking and writing about the downfalls of capitalism and the negative impacts of the Vietnam War for so long. Maybe she finally grew tired of not seeing results. It's very possible. And when she saw these girls who were stuck in group homes, she had direct evidence of young people who were suffering at the hands of the state. This could very well have pushed her to want to take physical action. Through investigating state-run girls' homes for orphans, delinquents, and troubled girls in 1966, Ulrika Meinhof continued to garner a growing hatred towards the government. What was once a pacifist outlook was beginning to morph as the violence in Germany started to ramp up. Then, on June 2, 1967, something happened that pushed the left-wing student protest movement over the edge. The Royal Shah of Iran was invited to go to the opera in Berlin on official state business. The student protesters went to the opera house to protest the Shah's totalitarian rule. A police officer shot and killed one of the protesters, Benno Onisorg. He was 26. According to the book, Everybody Talks About the Weather, We Don't, the students were, quote, scandalized by police brutality and the cynical and biased reporting of the events by the conservative media, end quote. After this, they felt that there was only one way to fight this violence, with violence. Concrete and Ulrika supported the student movement, though Ulrika still tried to lean more towards speech than violence at first. In a 1967 article, she wrote, quote, the students have come to understand that they cannot achieve anything quietly and decently, but only with noise and rigorousness, end quote. Ulrika's husband and editor-in-chief of Concrete, Klaus Roll, allowed student protest leader Rudy Dutschke to write a regular column for the magazine. While 1967 was certainly a turbulent year in politics, it was also a rough year for Ulrika's personal life. At the end of the year, when Ulrika was 33, she discovered Roll was having a serious affair with a married Greek woman. He even invited her to Ulrika's birthday party. Though Roll didn't plan to leave Ulrika and his daughters, this finally pushed Ulrika to file for divorce. 
Their divorce was settled in February 1968. Ulrika was granted full custody of their twins, now age five, and moved from Hamburg to Berlin. She continued contributing articles to Konkret from afar. According to Hitler's Children, the story of the Bader-Meinhof terrorist gang, after the divorce, Ulrika's writing gradually, quote, became fulminant, bombastic, grammatically ungainly, and at times almost hysterical, end quote. Though she'd been building towards this for some time, Ulrika didn't start a revolution until after her divorce in 1968. When she broke away from Klaus Rall, her new independence lit a fire in her that would go on to ignite explosions. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Now the story continues. After moving to Berlin, Ulrika Meinhof became personally involved in protests. She took part in debates and defended the protesters in her writing. According to Everybody Talks About the Weather, We Don't, Ulrika attended a protest in which women of the Socialist German Student Union threw tomatoes at a male speaker. The women felt they were being just as oppressed by the men in their organization as they were by mainstream society. Ulrika sided with them. She wrote, quote, The reactions of the men at the conference showed that entire freight train loads of tomatoes will have to be thrown at appropriate targets for the message to really sink in, end quote. That spring, the protest movement really started to intensify. On April 2nd, 1968, four communist protesters bombed two Frankfurt, Germany department stores to protest capitalism and the Vietnam War. These protesters were Andreas Bader, Gudrun Enslin, Torvald Prohl, and Horst Sonlein. Nobody was hurt in the bombings. Bader and Enslin were communists and avid protesters who were known to resort to violence. Enslin had become one of the leaders of the student protest movement after the police shooting of Onisorg in 1967. After the department store bombings, the four were arrested. Just nine days later, on April 11th, an anti-communist man attempted to assassinate left-wing student leader and concrete writer Rudy Duchka by gunshot. Duchka took a bullet to the head but survived. It later came out that the shooter had seen Duchka in newspapers published by the anti-communist Springer Company and believed Duchka was the face of the dangerous communist movement in West Germany. Ulrika and other young Germans took to the streets in protest. Up until this point, Ulrika had written about and spoke out in support of the protests and had even spoken at debates and conferences. But she hadn't been physically involved in the events. Now, on April 11, 1968, at the age of 33, Ulrika felt compelled to act. The Springer Company had a yard full of trucks that would deliver their conservative newspaper, Bild Zeitung. This was one of the magazines that had labeled Duchka as an enemy. Alongside a concrete colleague, Ulrika parked her car in front of the truck yard so the delivery trucks couldn't get out. This seems like a rather naive and mundane act, but Ulrika was arrested. 
Her colleague claimed she didn't mean anything by what she'd done, and she was released without charge. But Ulrika had meant it, and this small action fueled the fire inside her. After this event, Ulrika wrote an article that contained some of her most famous writing. Quote, Protest is when I say this is something I don't like. Resistance is when I put an end to what I don't like. Protest is when I say I refuse to go along with this anymore. Resistance is when I make sure everybody else stops going along too." End quote. In October, Bader and Enslin confessed to their crimes in court, saying they planted the bombs in protest. They were imprisoned. Ulrika interviewed them but admitted she couldn't publish much of what she found. According to Jillian Becker in her book, Hitler's Children, Ulrika claimed that if she published her article, quote, they would never have got out of prison, end quote. During the autumn of 1968, Ulrika was working on a screenplay about girls' homes called Bambula. At this time, Rawl planned to increase the publishing of Concrete to two issues a month rather than one. He asked Ulrika to be editor-in-chief again. She declined. She had something else in mind. She had co-founded her own author's collective called Concrete Berlin. The goal of Concrete Berlin was for Ulrika and her co-workers to write articles together and not give credit to one specific author. This would support their communist ideals of reflecting the thoughts of the group rather than individuals. Rawl gave them a shot at publishing their collective columns in Concrete, but their columns weren't a hit. This upset Ulrika, and she began to have more and more issues with the content of Concrete. Her breaking point came in March 1969, when she wanted to publish an article written by a grassroots organization under her name. Rawl refused to do this. Ulrika resigned from Concrete. In April, she wrote an article in the Frankfurter Rundschau that accused Rohl and the Konkret staff of taking a stand against the revolution. According to Everybody Talks About the Weather, We Don't, Ulrika wrote, quote, I terminate my collaboration because the paper is in the process of becoming an instrument of the counter-revolution, and I don't want to camouflage this, end quote. In reality, the editors of Concrete were still writing about the same pro-student, anti-war issues they had always written about. But apparently now it wasn't enough for Ulrika. But simply quitting the paper wouldn't do. On May 7th, Ulrika planned a raid of Concrete's Hamburg offices. She planned to usurp control of the newspaper from Roll and turn it back into the revolutionary paper she believed it once was. But he found out about the raid, and he and his management staff stayed away from the offices. Ulrika and her team of nearly 80 activists arrived at the office, but police held them back from going inside. Outside, the group was loud and clear about their purpose. They gave pamphlets to all of the employees that said Rull and the other managers were reaping the financial benefits of their hard work and leaving them with nothing. After the attempted raid of the Concrete office, Ulrika led her protesters to the home she used to share with Rull. They vandalized it inside and out, even urinating in his bed. If her 80-person gang following her to the Concrete offices was any indication, Ulrika had surrounded herself with a group of people like her. Communist activists who were sick and tired of not seeing change. So tired, in fact, that they wanted to orchestrate change themselves. There's a concept in social psychology called risky shift, which was discovered by James Stoner in 1961. This is also known as group polarization or mob mentality. The concept says that when an individual with strong beliefs joins a group of people who believe the same things she does, the group will together form a more extreme version of those beliefs. This often leads the group to take actions that the individual members would never have thought of doing themselves. It's worth noting that at its base level, communism is an ideology that focuses on the group rather than individuals. So this was a gang made up of individuals who already believed in the power of groups. 
With these new friends and like-minded activists, Ulrika was already taking the kinds of actions she had never taken before. And then she fell into the same circle as Gudrun Enslin and Andreas Bader, the department store bombers. On June 13, 1969, Bader, Enslin, and their two cohorts were released from jail as they waited for an appeal to be heard. Bader and Enslin started traveling around Germany, recruiting boys in state-run homes to join their cause. The resistance members would give them food, housing, and apprenticeships in exchange for their help in protests and activism. Ulrika was still researching the state-run girls' homes she was writing about for her screenplay. She got some of the boys who had recently joined their cause to go to the homes and convince the girls to protest their living conditions and recruit them for the movement. There were many reasons why communism and revolution may have been appealing to these children and teens. They were living in poor conditions and had little power over their own lives. The idea of taking action against the government, the equality communism theoretically provided, and the care and apprenticeships Ulrika's movement offered these children would be enough to make any of them run away. But the revolutionaries in Ulrika's group, who were funding the care and housing of these kids, soon couldn't provide for them. As a result, many of them ran away, started taking drugs, or began working as sex workers. These children had traded one extreme for another, and having been raised in group homes their whole lives, they may have had psychological or behavioral issues that had gone untreated. According to Hitler's children, some of the youths later accused the organization of, quote, preventing us from distinguishing between the right and wrong kinds of protest and criticism, end quote. The loss of the youths was no doubt a blow to their movement, but this seemed to push Ulrika farther. According to the 2002 BBC documentary Bader Meinhof, In Love with Terror, Ulrika taught a journalism course at the Free University of Berlin for one semester from 1969 to 1970. But she didn't teach them journalism. Instead, she tried to recruit them to join the leftist resistance. Ulrika was fully immersed in the movement. In November 1969, Enslin and Bader lost their appeal and were supposed to return to prison. But Ulrika and their other supporters helped them flee to escape their sentences. Ulrika opened up her home as a safe house and gathering place for the pro-communism movement. Her daughters, now age seven, were still living with her at the time. It seems strange that a vocal resistance member like Ulrika could use her own place as a safe house without being caught. But maybe authorities didn't suspect her because she didn't have a police record. From 1969 to 1970, Ulrika was the caretaker, the planner, and the voice of the movement through her journalism. Her screenplay, Bambula, was filmed, directed by Eberhard Itzemplitz, to be released as a TV movie in 1970. But before its release, Ulrika committed crimes that would prevent audiences from seeing her film until years later. Bader was rearrested in 1970 when he was caught driving with an expired license. Enslin remained in hiding. Ulrika concocted a plan to free Bader. He would say he was writing a book and that Ulrika was assisting him. She was a well-known writer, so this wasn't too far of a stretch. They planned to work together at the library of the German Institute for Social Questions in Dahlem, Germany. Ulrika was familiar with this library, having worked there in the past. On May 14, 1970, guards brought Bader into the library to meet with Ulrika. They were meant to be the only two people there, and Bader was to remain handcuffed. But Ulrika convinced the guards to uncuff him so that he could write. As Bader and Ulrika researched two young women, Irene Gorgans, age 19, one of the girls Ulrika had rescued from a group home, and Ingrid Schubert, 26, pretended to be students. The library let them in, though not in the same room as Bader and Ulrika. They sat outside the locked door. Then, a man with a gun ran in. Irene and Ingrid pulled guns of their own, and the gang stormed the inner room of the library. 
This apparently wasn't enough of a distraction, so they shot and wounded an employee. In the midst of the chaos, Bader and Meinhof jumped out the window and ran away. It may sound like a scene from an action movie, but this was the reality of Ulrika's new life. After this astonishing break, the gang sent letters to newspapers telling them to, quote, start the armed resistance, build up the Red Army, end quote. And from that point forward, this group of aggressive revolutionaries became known as the Bader Meinhof Gang, or Red Army Faction. According to Hitler's children, the public began viewing Ulrika as the well-known pacifist journalist who had daringly freed Bader. And even though Enslin had been more of an official leader than Ulrika, Ulrika got the reputation as the gang's co-leader. After freeing Bader, Ulrika went into hiding with the rest of the gang. She secretly had friends take care of the twins. She wanted them in hiding too, so that Roll couldn't get them. Over the next two years, Ulrika Meinhof would be behind some of the most notorious, violent political crimes in post-World War II Germany. There's a fine line in history between revolutionary and terrorist, and Ulrika was about to cross it. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Tune in next week to hear about Ulrika Meinhof's transformation into an urban guerrilla, her journey across West Germany for safe houses and weapons, and the downfall and eventual imprisonment of the Bader Meinhof gang. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Wednesday as we continue our look into the crimes of Ulrika Meinhof and her ruthless communist army. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Stacey Milborn and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson. 